The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Queen Njunga was a 17th century ruler of Ndongo and Matamba in modern-day Angola, and she established an impressive reputation for her skills as a warrior and as a diplomat. At a time when Portuguese colonists were ramping up operations in the region, Njunga had to fight tooth and nail and make difficult decisions to protect her people. She's the subject of the first season of a new Netflix docudrama, African Queens. And to find out more about her complex story, Kev Lotchen spoke to one of the series' experts, broadcaster, historian and anthropologist Luke Pepperer. I'm joined today by Luke Pepperer. Luke is a writer, broadcaster, anthropologist and historian and he's also one of the experts on Netflix's recently released docudrama series African Queens and Jinga. Luke, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be able to speak to you today. Thank you for having me on, Kev. So on this episode, we're going to be talking about the life and legacy of Njinga, of Ndongo and Matamba, um, two territories that uh, are now what is modern day Angola. Um, Luke, before we get into that too much, I wonder if you could take us back. When in history are we talking about here and what kind of world was Nzinga born into? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So um, we're talking mainly about late 16th, early 17th century, like you said, what is now modern day Angola. So there, the two, the two sort of major kingdoms in that era are the kingdoms of, of Congo and the kingdom of Ndongo. And Njinga herself is born into the kingdom of Ndongo. Now, this is about, it's, it's not too long ago, it's about 100 years um, after the Portuguese have penetrated into West Central Africa. And then so it's still quite early on that the, these two kingdoms are dealing with the Portuguese and and sort of working out how to how to treat them and how to have a relationship with them. I mean, the Kingdom of Congo initially are very fantastic in uh, building a relationship with the Portuguese. Um, you know, quite early on, they convert to, to Christianity. There are diplomatic missions. There are trade deals. Um, you have the children of Congolese nobles going to Rome, and you know, and and then you have you know priests from from Spain and from Italy coming to um, Congo. And Indongo is quite keen to. Um, to replicate this because they see that it is an advantage for Congo to have this relationship with the Portuguese. So Ndongo sort of wants to do the same. So this is Njinga's uh, uh, grandfather and, um, and and father in particular who are concerned with building up that relationship with the Portuguese. So she's born into, you know, an era where there's this confluence of the two worlds. It's really, you know, East versus West, uh, Christianity versus traditional religion um, and the tensions between, you know, these two major powers, one in Europe and those also in, in, in West Central Africa are really feeling each other out. Um, and that's the landscape, yeah, into which she's born. 
And yeah, it seems like from the show, certainly by the time she is a young adult, that relationship may be a bit less cordial. Yeah. Can you briefly take us through, like someone who's never heard of Enzinga, how does this kind of go on to define her life? What does she do? Yeah, so it's also in this era that actually the Portuguese are concerned with forming a colony in what is um, in Dongo. So they want to, as well as um, building up the trade relationships, they also have this this other ambition, um, which is to form the the kingdom actually of Angola. And this is derived from uh, the name of of the king of of, of Ndongo, and his title being Ingola. Um, so the Congolese and then the Portuguese call, and they call it Angola. And you know, it's uh, uh, the Portuguese king Sebastião is is, is is concerned with uh, making um, Indongo um, a colony. So actually he gives um, orders um, to uh, some of his, his missionaries and his soldiers to form the kingdom of Angola um, in sort of the late 1580s and 1590s. And this is where uh, uh, con- conquests, Portuguese conquests start happening in the kingdom of Indongo. So, and, and, and you know, this is uh, you know, during the time of uh, the reign of um, Injinga's father. Um, so he's the one who's primarily dealing with a much more aggressive Portuguese stance in the region. Um, and Injinga witnesses and the, to, to a certain extent has to deal with it herself because um, she's allowed in on her father's council meetings. And, you know, even even beforehand, he'd taken her on some campaigns and he really involves her in the political, military and diplomatic um, um, strategy. Um, but, you know, he, he'd actually previously had a had a deal with the with the Portuguese um, to put down, um, you know, re- uh, put down the rebellions of some Sobers who'd gone against him. Um, so that was beforehand. And then in the 1580s, 1590s, whilst the Portuguese are conquering the lands around Indongo, especially, um, he reneges on this on this treaty. Um, and he actually ends up capturing and also slaughtering some Portuguese sol- uh, soldiers. Um, and then this sours relationships in particular. But when Njinga's young, um, she sees her father really facing a Portuguese aggression and actually having a really hard time dealing with it. Um, so the Portuguese are um, not only running, you know, roughshod through the region, um, but they're actually, uh, yeah, de- defeating quite heavily militarily Jinga's um, father um, in combat and in campaigns. Um, and part of and what goes along with that is also the enslavement of certain uh, numbers of, of, of people of Free and Bundu, which is an issue. You know, the enslavement of Free and Bundu is an issue. Um, for uh, the Ndongo leadership. Ndongo is going to become this great leader, but at the time of her birth, she isn't actually in line for the crown. She doesn't inherit directly from her father. So how does this uh, this power and responsibility come to rest on her shoulders? Well, I think she takes it because, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the the Ubuntu culture does not follow primogeniture. It's not necessarily the eldest son of the of of, of the of the current king who inherits. You know, it's 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 elective, um, so it's a kind of survival for the fittest competition. And actually, you know, in Ubuntu tradition, there is, uh, you know. Uh, Injinga is sort of said to be special. You know, so she was born in the breech position with her umbilical cord wrapped around her neck. And this unusual position meant that she was destined for greatness. And when, you know, the Imbundu see her being born, they sort of proclaim, you know, oh, my mother. And, you know, so there is actually a story about her being, um, you know, born special and destined for greatness. But, you know, it's not certain that actually anybody is going to, you know, is going to uh, um, inherit the throne, especially as Njinga's father is looking weak. When Njinga's father, um, uh, you know, moves on from the throne, then there is a competition between, you know, his sons and and one of them, Ngola Mbande, um, who's the most 
you know, ends up being the most brutal of them and the most ambitious, um, ends up taking um, the throne essentially through the killing of his, you know, his, 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 his family members, his uncles, his nephews, etc. Um, and he spares Ninjinga and her sisters, um, Kambu and Funji. Um, but, uh, you know, as the story goes, something that is actually not shown, I don't think so much in, in the docudrama, is that he also actually forcibly sterilizes them. So it's said that hot you know, a mixture of hot herbs, etc., is poured on um, the stomachs of his sisters. And it's it, this is like the, the story that is told, but it's known that they don't conceive again. So that's the story that's told. So whether that's actually how it happened, we don't know. But what we do know is that they they none of them have children again. And Njinga had had a son who Ingolo and Band-Aid, you know, does, does, does get rid of. He does actually, you know, liquidate. Um, so he takes the throne forcibly in that fashion. Um, and Njinga... You know, she actually um, retreats to the kingdom of of of, of Matamba, which is ne- very near uh, uh, Indongo. She's sort of waiting in the wings to whether it's you know for vengeance or um, because she sees that Ingola and Bade later on is failing to contain the threat of the Portuguese, whatever it is. It's not certain that she's going to become um, this great leader, but you know, it, it is what is certain is that she does have the chops. You know, she goes through so much so much trauma and so much difficulty, not only because of what her father had endured and having to see that, um, but also what had happened to her because of her brother. Um, and actually bides her time. You know, she doesn't retreat. She doesn't go into exile. Um, you know, she doesn't give up. She actually bides her time, uh, you know, and waits for an opportunity um, in order to return and to, uh, yeah, and, and to do things that her father and, you know, her brother and, you know, other Ndongo leaders couldn't, couldn't do. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit Apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. And that opportunity, if I remember correctly, comes at her brother's invitation, the brother who uh, inflicted that trauma on her. He sends her as an envoy to the Portuguese. There's an incident which really showcases the kind of woman and the kind of leader Nzinga might be where she meets the Portuguese and there's a chair. I wonder if you could tell us about that and your perspective on it. Yeah, so Angola Mbande is he's just having a terrible time with the Portuguese. You know, he's losing campaigns left, right, and centre. The Portuguese have recruited 
um, you know, these band of, of, of brutal mercenaries, the Imbangala, they're sacking Ndongo, they're sacking Kabasa. So he reaches out to Njinga because he sees that she's popular, you know, more, more especially, and she's very keen in order to get the, the Portuguese, um, you know, away from Ndongo. So he reaches out to her Matamba and invites her to be his em- envoy to Luanda. So this is in the early 16, 1620s. Um, and when she gets to... Um, Luanda. She's actually initially greeted by, um, you know, gun salutes and a, and a festival and parade, and all the elites, the Portuguese elites of Luanda, come out to meet her. And it's it's a very it's a very wonderful um, uh, entrance and expedition. But the Portuguese um, are also, you know, they're, they're playing a power game. Um, and one of the things they liked to do is that for the for the Indonga nobles, um, in other words, the Sobas, um, you know, as they were called locally. Um, uh, would they like to, you know, when they when they either conquered their lands or forcibly recruited them or coerced them into joining them, um, when they when they met with them, they made them undergo a vassalage uh, ceremony, and then when they met them. It, when they met them afterwards, but also during that vassalage ceremony, whilst the Portuguese governor would be sitting, would be sitting on this velvet, fantastic, like gold embroidered chair, he'd make um, the the sobers, the Indongo noble, sit on the mat, and it was about showing that power imbalance because they had to look up at the Portuguese. Now, when it comes to the negotiations between um, Injinga and the Portuguese, the Portuguese try and do the same thing. They, um, you know, they don't give her a chair and they give her a mat instead to sit on um, whilst the governor himself is sitting on, 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 his, on his amazing chair. Um, and Injinga, instead of either sitting on the floor asking for a chair to be brought, she asks for one of her servants, essentially, um, to uh, go on, you know, on her hands and knees, on all fours, um, on the mat. And she sits on her back and then conducts, you know, the hours of negotiation, you know, on the back of 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 of, of the servant, um, putting herself on the same level of the Portuguese, but also crucially demonstrating um, her authority over her people, you know, how much they hold her in esteem, um, and also the love of her people, you know, that no one, none of the Ubuntu had battered an eyelid at this, you know, at this act. Um, shows that they're incredibly loyal to her. Um, they hold her in high esteem. You know, they 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 respect her authority. Um, and I think for the Portuguese, that would have been you know quite quite daunting um, because um, you know they didn't realize that actually the Mbundu have this much fight in them still left. So this kind of theme of equality with colonial powers will be one that comes back through Enzinger's life with the Portuguese later on the Dutch. Um, how? How do, how do you view her position in trying to enforce that? I suppose. Yeah, no, that's 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 a, that's a really good point, and I think, like you said, it's one of the crucial themes of of her life and her personal ambition and her personality. Is you know, at the end of the day, what Injinga wanted was a sovereign in Dongo. That is a chief ambition. Whatever she can do to gain that, um, she's gonna she's gonna do it. Um, and you know, with the Portuguese. Um, even even during those negotiations, you know, when the Portuguese say that actually one of the things they want in return for what Nanjinga is asking is for her, um, you know, to either to be a vassal of the Portuguese and to send slaves, you know, as a vassal, you know, that tribute. Um, she says, well, in, you know, Gola Bande, as in Ndongo, hasn't been conquered. Therefore, it's not a vassal. It is an equal power, you know, with um, with the Portuguese. And that is a theme during, you know, in her negotiations and in the deal she signs with the Portuguese um, and uh, with the Dutch and in the conversations she had with them. She always stresses the point that actually Ndongo is a sovereign state and it's happy to seek a relationship with other sovereign states in the way that the sovereign states of Europe or wherever do. 
um, but it will never resign itself and she will never resign herself to being Portuguese vassal. So every time they're trying to impose vassalage on Ndongo, she fights back. So even after you know, even after the negotiations where they try to do it, instead of agreeing to become a vassal, she instead institutes a, a rebellion and she sends her messengers to all the Portuguese farms and to tell people that she's standing up to the Portuguese. You know, she hides out in the Kandonga Islands. It's all about saying, um, you know, we will not submit to being um, a vassal. And, um, and you know, that is the constant three theme running throughout. So the 60 or so years, she's battling against the Portuguese and making deals with the Dutch and, and all the rest of it. So, yeah, that's absolutely right. One term that comes up is woman king. And this is this has kind of come into consciousness as well recently with the Viola Davis film. I think. There was no concept that she could just be a king or even just a queen among the colonial powers then. I mean, to be honest, even in, in even in Mbundu culture, she was she was unique in the fact that she was the first female ruler. Now, female rulers aren't unusual, um, especially in the history of Africa, i.e., as a um, you know as as a tradition, um, you know, rather than you know as as, as a one off or as a special case. Um, and even in in Mbundu culture, you know, women were treated fairly equally. Women, like I said, even Njinga before she was a queen or a female king, was allowed to. You know, to participate in her father's diplomatic and uh, you know war cabinets and, and and diplomatic discussions and all the rest of it. Um, and in Bundu women, for example, uh, when they were married to a man or had their husband, they weren't considered that man's property, and they can divorce them whenever they wanted and come back to live with their father, etc. So you had this this balance, but um, you know there was an aspect, especially with her dealing with the Portuguese, where um, kingship had a very masculine element. Um, if you think about even, let's say, Ngola Mbande's behavior, you know, what he's doing, you know, you know, warfare in particular, strategy, brutality, these aspects, um, which somewhat define kingship, especially um, in that era. And, you know, the institution of the female king being something that's, you know, in, in, you know questionable how how the depth of it um, in um, uh, sort of in Bundu society, but then we have you know, let's say uh, 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 Queen Diambi Kamatsuila, who's on the documentary, um, who's um, a Luba queen, you know, currently a queen in, in West Central Africa and who um, is a, you know, is a female king just, and styles herself um, as a female king. Um, so there's obviously some kind of cultural depth to it. But I think it's it's especially, you know, it's very useful um, if it isn't invented for the purpose of uh, dealing with uh, dealing with the Portuguese and having her recognised as you know a monarch on equal standing with those with those monarchs on Europe, the majority, if not all of them, um, are kings. On that theme of kingship, one other um, point Doctor Drama kind of leaned quite heavily on was Enzinger has these symbols of power, and at one point she has to give them up to secure an alliance. I mean, how important f- for her and her people would actually holding on to those symbols have been and what is the cost of losing them? You know, this is where she she makes um, you know, an alliance with um with an Imbangala band. Um and as part of that, uh, you know, as part of the deal with the leader of that band, she has to give up these symbols of authority and Ubuntu authority. It's a transformation. This is the thing, both social you know, socially, culturally, and in and, you know, because of the ritual she has to undergo in in, you know, as in the Mangala camp, also physically as well, a transformation from a member of Mbundu society into an Mbangala. So she's literally shedding one identity and taking on another. And then later on, she combines the two by taking on again 
aspects of Mbundu, um, Mbundu uh, uh, culture. But, you know, it's, I, I mean, huge. That's one of the reasons. She says goodbye when she does make this deal. She does leave behind, as it were. You know, she says goodbye to most of her followers, apart from like a handful of, 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 of you know, very close, very close servants. Um, so it is an aspect of having to leave behind the society in order to be reborn into something else in order to um, defeat the Portuguese because she needed the, the the military backing of the Mbangala. She needed the troops and, and, and so on. So it shows the extent of her resolve that actually she was willing to go to this length to literally, um, uh, you know, shed her Mbundu identity, her Mbundu-ness, if you will, um, in order to become, because that, that is the extent of it. Like you said, you know, you asked how important it is. That is the extent of it. You're, you're ceasing to be a member of that society almost in order to inculcate yourself into the society of another, the Mangala. And then later on, she, she, she re-inculcates herself into that of the Mbundu. But yeah, it is literally shedding um, her identity um, in order to achieve the same of gaining a sovereign, you know, sovereign in Donga. Um, yeah. What is the circumstances that has led her to approach the Mbangala in the first place? Njinga approaches the Mbangala after suffering a crushing defeat. Um, you know, she's lost soldiers, troops. Uh, you know, she needs she needs she needs support. She needs um, you know she needs an army backing her. Um, so and and you know the Mbangala is actually crucial. Becoming an Mbangala and 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 making a deal with that Mbangala leader. Um, uh, is a crucial aspect um, of her regaining her military strength. Um, you know, she uses that army then to then to conquer the kingdom of Matamba, and suddenly she has a stronghold right next to um, Indongo, um, and she has uh, you know the armies, uh, the troops from Matamba as well as the Mbangala. It's an aspect of kind of re regenerating her strength after um, you know after setbacks and you know and, and a crushing defeat. Did Matamba not have a monarchy that minded uh, being ousted? Yeah, so the, I mean, there was a queen of of of, of Matamba at the time, Queen Mwanga, who Injinga deposes um, and then sends her off into exile, and then she dies shortly afterwards. And then um, Injinga adopts Queen Mwanga's daughter and um, raises her almost as her own. But um, with the Mbangana strength, I mean, I think the Matambans had very little chance of. Of defeating Injinga, and especially because of her, you know, her, her, her strategy and her and her, her skill in warfare in particular. Um, but um, they did mind, but they had no, they they had no choice in the matter. It seems <laughs> something I came to feel about Injinga is as well being like protective of her people and her culture. She was actually quite ruthlessly pragmatic in in going for those goals. Like in talking about you know taking over a kingdom, um, she offed her own nephew. How should we consider her character in that context? Because she's not a saint. No, she's not a saint, but she's a great leader. By definition, um, they, you can't be one and the same. If you think about all the great leaders in history, which one of them was a saint? All the people who really achieved, which one? From, you know, the ones who conquered Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, even was a judge to a certain extent, you know, Nelson. Not, because it requires you to make decisions that no normal person will ever have to face in their life. That's the key. And... The reason I say she's a great leader because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, she achieves what she sought um, and she made sacrifices along the way. But don't forget, great personal sacrifices. I mean, no one suffered more than her, probably. When she's seeking the peace with the Portuguese, a lot of what she talks about is basically just wanting to have a peace of mind. She's like, I've been at this for 60 years. You know, she, talk, she talks about, I just want to live in peace with my sister. 
you know, one of her sisters, Funji, is, is, is assassinated by the Portuguese. So if you think about what she's gone through from right at the beginning. So no, I don't think we should consider her um, a saint per se, but um, she was never going to be a saint um, to a certain extent. And I think her not being a saint is also what makes her a great leader because a saint can't take the decisions that she did in order to achieve what she did. In situations like that, you don't need saints. You need people who are going to get things done for the most part, you know, and that's what she does. And at the end of the day, she secured a a bright future, you know, at least by the time that she'd, you know, she was old and she'd passed away, she'd secured a bright future for um, for Ndongo. Um, you know, it wasn't conquered wholesale by the Portuguese. It didn't come, become the kingdom of Angola, you know, until a lot later. And that was partly because of her actions. And so she, maybe not the same, but a set, I think a great leader. I think she should rank up there, honestly. Um, on the subject of greatness one thing you mentioned quite early on was uh the circumstance of her birth and the umbilical cord and i i mean i would assume that be fairly common knowledge among the people that this had happened and what the portent of it do we have any sense she might have um bought into her own greatness as well because of that how much of it is apocryphal that is the question the you know the historian always has to ask i think there are some aspects that are apocryphal for sure um the umbilical cord, whether or not that was seen as a sign of greatness at the time, that's hard to say. But I mean, you definitely have aspects. So, for example, one of the things you know that that that, that is mentioned in her story, and especially in, in the Bundu tradition, is that she was the favourite amongst her father's children, which is one of the reasons that um, uh, you know he allowed her in, you know, into his talks and his discussions, etc. And also one of the reasons she had quite a deep, um, uh, you know, history of, of, of rivalry with Ngola and Bande because she was better, you know, at all the royal children than wielding the axe, which is like the symbol of, you know, of Ndongo nobility and authority, you know, one of the symbols of authority and nobility and axe throwing and wielding the axe and that she was the smartest and the strongest and this of all the royal children. So you ask yourself, well, okay, perhaps, but, um, you know, we don't know for sure, especially after some of this information was coming from Ninjinga herself to, to you know, to reporters. But, um, I mean, it certainly fits with, what she achieved so it's, it's it's whether she was always great or if you know the circumstances that um she some of which she put herself in some of which um into which she was thrust um helped forged her into a great person one aspect that we haven't touched on too much is the slave trade at this time yeah and i wondered if we could unpick a little bit about how and Zynga interacted with that because she seems to be very forceful in that, you know, there there are no enslaved people in or she doesn't participate in the slave trade, but there are enslaved people in Ndongo. I'm just trying to get my head around yeah, that. Yeah, see, I think this is this is always a point of confusion. I think a point of confusion for people who've also watched the documentary as well, is that um, even though they're described um, as slaves, the actual practice of slavery in Africa is a different um, institution. So it's better to describe them, for example, as serfs. It's like feudal serfdom, essentially. Enslaved people in a lot of African societies, for example, you know, can um, you know, earn, you know, they earn their freedom. They can marry the children of their master. They're treated like artisans or like servants. You know, they're given their free time. So they're not they're not property meant to work. You know. Um, solely for the profit of, of of their masters i mean in fact even in um in 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 early 13th century mali the founder sundi Artikata, when he when he founds his kingdom he institutes a um a constitution and one of the laws of the constitution is that a master must treat his his you know his slaves fairly 
So that's very different from the chattel slavery of the Americas, where they, they conceived of um, the people they had, not, you know, the people they had after a point majority Africans um, as property, working them until they die and importing them and importing more because it was cheaper to do that than to take care of the enslaved Africans you already had. That's a very different institution from what's happening in, you know, in, in Indongo. And it's also to what extent a commercial um, uh, slave trade is happening, you know, because that, that's something that doesn't really take off, especially until the 18th century. And certain kingdoms and what's now modern-day Benin, of which Dahomey was one, um, but then had kings who were against entering into commercial agreements of, of, of slavery with European European merchants and European powers. Um, and then, but also kingdoms who were very open to it, like the kingdom of Wina in 18th century Dahomey had a king called Hufon, who was very, very open to entering into commercial agreements. And then there's the question of the people you actually ended up um, enslaving. So for example, with, um, with Dahomey, it might be um, some uh, 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 prisoners of war from other ethnic groups. And this is probably also what what would have been the case in 17th century um, in Dongo. So Nijinga is also, again, she's against the enslavement and the selling of free Mbundu, which is also what certain Congolese rulers were against, Alfonso I being an example. You know, he writes to um, Port, you know leaders in Europe um, lamenting that basically, you know, there were people who were just being like snatched from the streets of, 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 of you know, of the capital of the kingdom um, of Congo and people who'd come to be priests and doctors, etc., were participating in this trade because um, of its uh, uh, potential profitability. Um, at the same at the same time, you know, he's not against the 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 trading of um, you know, other unfree peoples from other ethnic groups in Africa. It's a nuanced and sophisticated system. And I think it's not correct to categorize it like it was happening in the Americas, because that's a unique, um, that's a unique system of slavery, um, especially, most especially because of its racial aspect. Because, you know, Ndongo, um, uh, Ndongo, Congo, the, the kingdoms of Africa, weren't slave societies in the same way that the southern United States and Jamaica and Barbados, etc., um, became and were. There's an anthropologist called Igor Kopitov who talks about the trading of rights and persons and this actually being how this is actually the way in which to best describe the system of what is more colloquially known as slavery in Africa. Because it wasn't, sometimes people would be enslaved, quote unquote, i.e. sent to a household and to join a household as punishment for having committed a crime um, because they were disabled and couldn't get any other work and then being treated as a member of that household. And again, it's very different in different African societies. So, um, you know, there are, there's a lot of nuance there. But, you know, I think that, that um, you know, there's, I don't think there's um, a contradiction there, to be honest, between Njinga being against um, the enslavement of, of Mbundu in the way that the Portuguese conceived of it, um, and then what other peoples characterised as slavery in her society, both then and later on and now. One thing I've been aware of as we've been talking is that when we're discussing Nzinga, I'm wondering what kind of records we have from which we're gleaning this information. You know, are we getting a version of Nzinga through European records, through European eyes, or do we also have African primary sources to draw on here? For a lot of the narrative, primarily European sources, especially seven, you know, the 17th, um, and I think also 18th century um, sources of, of missionaries. Um, but they were, in certain instances, writing down what Indongo people told them. So there's bias there, 
but you know it's it's not as it's not as biased as it otherwise could be where they're just telling the story wholesale themselves um and also um uh african primary sources through primarily things like uh you know material culture um and you know ritual practices and that kind of stuff the importance for example of the spiritual advisor in Ndongo, the nganga and oral histories as well what we, an archaeology what we can actually see on the ground um as well Nzinga story is long and complex. And I say long because actually you touched on this earlier. It goes on for like 60 or more years. It's, this isn't happening over a short period of time. Um, I wonder as a way of drawing our discussion towards a conclusion, how does it end for her? Could you take us through like the final stages and, you know, what the end result is? Um, yeah, I think it ends, you know, primarily with with, with success. You know, she achieves people achieves peace with the Portuguese, um, and she gains a sovereign in Donga. I mean, I think apart from one major province, um, which is conceded to the Portuguese, she basically gains back a lot of, you know, old and traditional Ndongo, and also the kingdom of Ntamba, and is recognised as the queen queen of both. She sends as tribute 200 um, enslaved people to the Portuguese in order especially to gain back her sister, her sister Kambu, who's still alive, and she becomes very keen to do this after especially losing um, you know, her other sister, Fungi. The enslaved people that, in Jinga's sense of the Portuguese, are probably her own personal servants who might have been captured from, you know, different, in war and part of a different, you know, African ethnic group. In the peace treaty, Ndongo is not recognised as a vassal of the Portuguese. That's basically the key thing. It never, you know, it never becomes a, a, a vassal of the Portuguese, whereby Njinga is, selling ye- is sending yearly tributes to the Portuguese king. She emphatically, in fact, the Portuguese want to put that in the treaty. She and her advisors emphatically deny it and say that they won't sign it with this in, and the Portuguese actually take it out. Um, they're more concerned, to be honest, with developing um, their commercial slave trading operations in the region, um, to be fair, as well as just, you know, I mean, they've they've spent a lot of, you know, they spent a lot of time, money, effort, resources, troops, etc., on trying to contain Nijinga, um, and and failed. And, you know, even um, the Portuguese king's overseas council at the, you know, at, at the time is, is, you know, is trying to tell the um, uh, the the elite in Luanda, you know, to stop, you know, to stop because it's like they're they're just saying it's it's too much, it's, it's destroying like their economic opportunities in the region. Um, so they capitulate, they they give Nijinga what she wants, and like I said, she 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 maintains Ndongo's sovereignty, um, and she concedes one um, uh, province of the Portuguese. She has to agree to give up in Bangala practices, and you know, also adopt Christian ones. Um, but she gains her sister back. And I think actually Njinga gains the upper hand because she achieves what she set out to do. Um, she wins a sovereign, sovereign Ndongo. A final question for you then to draw this to a conclusion. What haven't we talked about, about Njinga that we really should have done? Um, that's a good question. I think one thing maybe that we uh that that wasn't as as explored because i was talking about her story specifically is actually the depth of her legacy um you know what she means and you know to to contemporary um you know to the angolans of today and to west central africans you know what she did you know what she achieved her her role for example in in the independence movement of angola um her role as um, a status symbol and a, and a symbol of freedom, what she really means to contemporary um, Angolans and, you know, how she, 
you know, how she sits in, in their history and in their conception of themselves. Um, that's something that, yeah, I think would be great to explore more. And that sort of matches the past or the present. Because, you know, I think with some of these things we think oh, it was happening, you know, they did happen, you know, a while ago, but actually, you know, the meaning of it still persists. That was Luke Pepperer, a broadcaster, historian and anthropologist. Luke is one of the experts featured in the four-part docudrama African Queens Njinga. That's available on Netflix now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 